What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome back to Wellness Inc. I'm Dr. Mike Moreno, taking a deep dive into all things wellness after over 25 years of practicing medicine. I'm fascinated with anything and everything that can help you feel better, live healthier, and become the best you possible. I'll be interviewing the most cutting edge experts in the field of wellness and exploring new innovative technologies to help you live your best life. At the end of each episode, I'll give you my weekly RX, my top tips for you to use right away. Remember to subscribe for free, rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. What do Americans really want when it comes to sex? And is it possible for us to get what we want? Think about that. Well, Dr. Justin Laymiller, a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the blog Sex and Psychology and the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire, has made it his career's ambition to answer all of these questions. This guy is going to help us a lot. No, he's going to help me. He's an internationally recognized sex educator and is here to help us lead a happier and healthier sex life and build stronger relationships. Thank you for being here, Dr. Lay Miller. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, listen, the first thing, I mean, we're going to get into this, but the first thing I got to say is as you're going through your formal education, what leads you down this path or how did you arrive at this is what I want to do? So for me, what I do now is not what I planned on doing my entire life. <laughs> I like to say that I ended up in the field of sex research and education serendipitously. So I went to graduate school to study the psychology of romantic relationships and what makes for a healthy, committed, long lasting relationship. And along the way, I got assigned to be a teaching assistant to a human sexuality course. And that class was my very first experience with formal sex education, you know, other than like the day in the fifth grade. Where right, right. <laughs> I was going to say, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it, it was just eye opening and it made me realize how little I knew about sex, how it's such an important topic, how people have so many questions about it. And it was weird because I was studying relationships, but nobody was talking about sex. And so that kind of made me want to go down that path and to really look at that intersection of sex and relationships. Yeah. And, you know, I think what happens is that, I mean, face it, let's face it, sex is, is one of the biggest aspects of a relationship, like it or not. So it seems interesting that so many people are not open to talking about it. So many people have struggles with their sex life. And it's kind of like, you know, we turn into like these giddy little like, you know, 16 year olds when someone mentions it. And it's really an important, very important thing for for a foundation for our relationship. It absolutely is. And I would argue that sex is perhaps the single biggest source of relationship conflict because right. partners aren't getting what they want and don't know how to communicate about it. And so that leads to problems in the bedroom that spill over into all the other aspects of their relationship. Yeah, I know, you know, as a primary care guy, I, I deal with a lot of this, uh, you know, whether it's uh, erectile dysfunction issues or whatever it may be, at least from the man's standpoint. And 
there's this sort of, uh, you know, people will come in. First of all, guy, you know how guys are. They're always afraid to come right out and say it because we're, we're macho, right? So we, we get there in a roundabout way. But it's amazing to me how much of a disconnect. And I'm, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. People think that stress should not have a huge impact on sex and erectile dysfunction. And I scratch my head because I think to myself, when I'm stressed out, if your mind's not where it's supposed to be, it's a problem. Do you see that as a big issue? Absolutely. And I think there's this sort of perception that your body should always do what you want it to do. Right. (laughs) You know, for example, people with penises, you know, that their penis should always function on command and do what you want it to do. (laughs) Um, You know, but the reality is that there's all kinds of factors that can impact our sexual functioning and stress is a big one, especially right now during a pandemic. You know, I've conducted research looking at how the pandemic is shaping people's sexual lives and relationships. And there are lots of big impacts on sexual functioning because of stress. It pushes down desire. It makes it harder to become and stay aroused or to have an orgasm. And that affects people of all genders and sexual orientations. And it's totally normal. I mean, it it seems to me just conceptually something like this can absolutely destroy an otherwise really good relationship. So it seems only important that you talk about this. So it takes in my next question is why are people so freaked out or afraid to talk about what they want or the whole section? I mean, where, where, where does that stem from? I think there's a couple of factors. One is that most of us aren't taught sexual communication skills. You know, sex ed is pretty basic covers usually just the mechanics of intercourse coupled with messaging saying, don't do it or wait until marriage. Right. To I do think it. it was like literally like an hour long in, in school. They're like, okay, on to the next subject. But yeah, I mean, my sex ed, like I remember being so excited in the fifth grade, like the day we were going to cover this. And I went in with my notebook and I wrote sex ed really big at the top of the page. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I had written nothing down because I left like knowing less <laughs> than I went in with. And uh, that's the problem with sex ed is that we're not teaching people useful information or practical communication skills. But the other factor that's important here is that there's so much shame that's tied up in sex and sexual desire. We're taught that it's something that is dirty and that right. your genitals are your private parts and, and all of these things. And so we feel like it needs to be cloaked in secrecy and that you don't talk about it. And that just makes it harder for people to ever open up those lines of discussion. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So what do you think now? Like, so I'm in my 50s. And I like if you were to kind of look at how people are approaching this subject now in 2020, or let's just say someone in their 50s versus someone in their 20s, are we getting there? Are we making some progress or or, or we still have a long way to go? 
I mean, it depends on the metrics that you're looking at. And there's this weird disconnect in the U.S. where you look at our culture and we see sex all around us. It's represented in advertising and movies and television. We hear about and see sex all the time, but it's a taboo subject still and we don't talk about it and the education just isn't there. And so, you know, if you're looking at sort of representation of sex in media and liberalization of sexual attitudes, you know, you, you do see that happening, uh, where people, for example, are more accepting of contraceptives and same sex relationships and, uh, sex outside of marriage. We're more accepting of these things today, but there's still so much that we don't know. And we still have a lot of room for improvement. I want to be clear, but when we say sex, it doesn't necessarily mean intercourse. You know, I, I think it, it can be just being intimate with your significant other. And, you know, I have a lot of patients. And as you get old, as they get older, it, it's something that, you know, perhaps for physiologic reasons or whatever. And it's kind of interesting. I got to tell you, I've had conversations with elderly couples who are so open about it. And so, you know, when they talk about their sexual relationship and they, they, I mean, quite honestly, they'll clearly tell you, well, we don't have penetration or we don't have intercourse, but we find ways of pleasing each other. And I'm thinking, okay, here's an 85 year old couple telling me this. I'm like, way to go to, you know, to recognize that it's more than just the act of intercourse. And I think that's such an important point and something that we can all learn from. When we ask people to define sex, we find that most people define it very narrowly as penetrative penile vaginal intercourse. Right. And they don't count other things like oral sex and so forth as being true forms of sex. And what we see in the research is that people who take more expansive views of what sex is are more sexually satisfied and it promotes healthier sexuality as they age. And there's a couple reasons for this. One is that it gives you more opportunities for pleasure, right? Because if your partner isn't interested in intercourse at one point in time, but maybe they're open to other activities, well, there's other things you can do and experience pleasure together and connect with one another. And then also as you age, you know, as you mentioned, more sexual difficulties tend to pop up due to changes in the body, due to chronic illnesses. And when you have this more expansive definition of sex, you can be more flexible and adaptable in how you meet your needs. And so I think part of having a healthy sex life is having that expanded definition of sex and being sexually flexible. Well, and you mentioned this, it it is sort of carries this Uh, you know, not negative, but a a sort of a quote unquote dirty connotation with it. And, you know, I think people get caught up in in exactly what you said. So I'm wondering this, are there common myths uh, when it comes to sex that that are not supported by science and research? What are some of those? I mean, there's so many. <laughs> well, let's I don't pick know, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I mean, let's give me. I'm, you know, I'm thinking my audience at home. If you're, they're thinking of the top one or two things that that are just, you know, so far off in the science. Like, what would you say that would be? I mean, one of them is what the normal human body is supposed to look like. You know, there's all kinds of misconceptions about what the average penis size is or what a vulva is supposed to look like. And sometimes those misconceptions come through pornography because porn has kind of become the default source of sex ed for a lot of people. And when you look at the research on something like average penis size, when you ask people what they think the average 
erect penis length is, they say something like six or seven inches, but the reality is it's closer to five, right? So the average penis is smaller than we tend to think it is. And I think that having that knowledge can be really helpful to people because men place so much value on their penis I know, size right? and they're all hung up on, you know, whether they can pleasure their partner and they feel a lot of shame. And it's like, you know, in reality, odds are you're probably pretty normal. And we see the same thing with the vulva, right? There's wide variation in the appearance of women's genital anatomy as well. And again, just if you're looking at porn as a model or diagram for what the human body looks like, recognize that those are not typical bodies that you're right. seeing. And that's not where you should go to learn about the human body or what sex is and how it's supposed to happen in real life. And before we go, what I really want to ask you, I'm dying to hear, you know, about some of the stuff you discovered in terms of fantasies and stuff like that. But I also feel there's this sort of false idea of when intercourse is taking place, there's also this kind of weird idea put out there by a number of sources that, you know, makes you, oh yeah, this guy will go for two hours without an orgasm. And then you're kind of like, really? Like, uh, really? (laughs) So, you know, what do you think about that? Is that, I mean, that's a big problem for people to, if you have the wrong information, just as you were talking about size, I think it's also important to give an idea of how long is foreplay typically how, you know, of course there's variation, how long from the time you're having intercourse does someone reach orgasm? I think those are important points as well. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of research looking at, you know, how long does sex last? How long does foreplay last? And if you're talking about heterosexual couples, the average length of sex and foreplay is around 20 minutes or so, right? That's including everything, you know, from warm up through, through orgasm. So it's not as long as most people think it is. And if you're looking at men specifically in terms of how long it takes them to reach orgasm from the moment of penetration to the moment of orgasm on average is five minutes. And they did this with studies where they gave men stopwatches and they had to like stop and start. Right. And so, uh, they've, they've also done parallel studies with women and for women, average time to orgasm is about 13 minutes or so. Uh, so women do take a little bit longer on average to reach orgasm. Um, but people's ideas about how long sex should last or it's supposed to last are way off from reality. And, you know, people think sex is supposed to last a lot longer than it normally does. And, you know, In reality, again, it doesn't look like on porn where people can go for hours and hours. Right. Like the sun's coming up. I mean, guys, please. Did you hear what the the good professor said? Five minutes is average. Right. So don't get all worked up about these things. But, yeah, you watch TV. You see now I think the passion and, and perhaps the foreplay, obviously. But as far as intercourse and as you put it, perfectly from the time of penetration to the time of, you know, an average of five minutes, people, I think people have this weird idea that, oh my gosh, it's supposed to be like, you know, an hour. I'm like, I don't think so. So I think it's important that people know that. All right. Now we got to get to something that I'm dying to hear about. When I saw this and I was looking through my notes, I was like, this is going to be interesting. You conducted the largest survey on sexual fantasies in America. So first of all, Let's talk a little bit about the most common ones that you discovered. Sure. So 
I surveyed more than 4,000 Americans from all 50 states. I asked them about their favorite fantasy of all time, and I content-coded those fantasies to look for themes and found that there were really seven main themes that account for people's favorite fantasies of all time. And okay, just interesting. quickly run through them. Uh, they <laughs> are first, multi-partner sex, so anything involving more than two people. Uh, next was BDSM, anything involving power control or or rough sex in a way. Uh, next was novelty and adventure, so just doing something that's new and different for you, such as sex in a new position or location. Then there are the taboo fantasies, where you're doing something that is socially or culturally forbidden. The non-monogamy fantasies, where you're fantasizing about being in some type of sexually open relationship. Then there's the passion and romance fantasies, which are more about emotional fulfillment rather than, you know, the explicit sex act itself. And then lastly, are kind of like the self-exploration fantasies where people are kind of pushing the boundaries of their gender role or sexual orientation in some way, such as a, a cisgender person who fantasizes about cross-dressing or a heterosexual person who fantasizes about a same-sex experience. I mean, it seems to me fantasies are normal and healthy in, in a relationship, you know, whatever they may, obviously we don't want to hurt anybody, but you know, in general, I think it's a healthy thing. Let's, let's, let me pose an example for you. Let's say if you have a couple, one who is into a fantasy and the other, not so much, how do you approach that? What do you say? Or do you say, Hey, I got an idea. Like, Walk me through this. Yeah. So that specific issue comes up a lot where partners might have a discrepancy in a desire. And when partners are sharing fantasies and your partner says something that you're not into, here's how I tell people to respond. First, start by thanking your partner for sharing that with you and recognize that it was probably difficult for them to bring that up because of all the taboos and stigma uh, and shame that's embedded in sexuality. Next, if you're not into the fantasy, that's okay, but take a little bit of time to think about it and think about whether there are aspects or elements of the fantasy that you might be into. So sometimes letting it marinate for a little bit, maybe doing a little bit of research right. can help to change your view because maybe you're not into it because you've just never thought about it before. It's just a totally different and foreign thing to you. And if you're not into it, you know, that's okay too, but think about, are there other ways that you can help your partner meet their sexual needs? So for example, is there a compromise fantasy that you can come up with where you're taking elements that you're interested in and elements that they're interested in and combining it in a way that is mutually satisfactory and pleasurable? It's all about the same word in so many things when you talk about relationships, communication. It, it, it comes down to not being afraid to to have that conversation. Um, but communication is, is key. And I, I think, you know, when you look at relationships, they talk about, uh, the, the strains in relationship, right? It's commonly children. It's probably commonly money, but as you mentioned, sex is a, is a big one. And I think having that conversation, I mean, half the time too, you, you don't even know, you assume your partner doesn't want to do this or what doesn't want to do that. And then you bring it up in a polite and in a, a mature way, it could change your life, really. Yeah, and that's what I see in my research is that the people who are sharing their fantasies with their partners and acting on them report 
being the most sexually satisfied. They're in the happiest relationships. They have the fewest problems with sexual functioning. They're just doing better on average by all metrics. And I should also say that most people report positive experiences where when they share their fantasy with a partner, that it brings them closer and it improves their relationship. And even if they don't go the extra step of acting on it, you've learned something about each other. You've deepened your connection. And, you know, it's important to recognize that fantasies can be useful just as a form of dirty talk. You know, just because you fantasize about something doesn't mean you actually have to do it. Right. So I think there's a lot that we can get out of tapping into our fantasies and sharing them more in our relationships. You know, so let me ask you this. If someone were to approach their significant other and say, hey, you know, I feel like our sexual life isn't what it used to be, which I'm sure is a common, common statement. Um, and they try to kind of subtly introduce, say, a fantasy and the other person's like not having it. Do you keep trying to revisit that or do you just put it to rest and go, well, I guess this is never going to happen? So with relationships, there's never any kind of one size fits all rule. But I think ideally the model that you're going to have in your relationship is that you're going to do regular sexual check-ins with your partner. A lot of people are under the impression that early on in the relationship, you establish your sexual compatibility and you're good to go. Right. right. But the reality is that our fantasies <laughs> change, you're good our, to go. <laughs> our bodies change. <laughs> and over the course of our lives, what we like in sex, what we want from sex changes and varies. And so if you're not checking in with your partner regularly, you're not going to know about the ways that they're changing. And this is part of what leads a lot of couples to disconnect over time right. is that they're changing in different ways. And the other one doesn't realize all of that. So right. having that open line of communication, I think is crucial. Let's say someone comes to you and, and there you have two people who are just in one direction and the other, right? Give us some strategies. Give us some things that we can do to design it, right? We come to you and I'm like, I have these fantasies, you know, that are all respectful and this and that and blah, blah, in my mind. My partner doesn't, but we want to. And hopefully, you know, your partner is willing to go with you to one of these discussions or probably many. <laughs> where, where do you start with designing something like that? Yeah. And this is, again, something where you have to figure out what's going to work best for you and your relationship circumstances. But one thing that I often suggest trying is expanding your sexual menu and trying to find and cultivate new shared sexual interests. So even if you're far apart on something, find a way to bridge that gap. And a helpful question that you can ask your partner is rather than making it about, you know, what is the specific sex act that you want to try? Ask them, how do you want to feel? during sex. That's a totally different conversation. And once you're sort of tapping into what are the deeper physical, sexual, emotional needs that they're trying to have met through sex, how can we create an experience that meets their needs and meets my needs at the same time? So I like to think of fantasies as being endlessly customizable based on the relationship. And so part of it might just be having that different type of conversation. And if you can't find a way to compromise, you know, some couples work this out by opening their relationship. Some couples work this out by, you know, one partner or both partners turn more to masturbation and pornography or virtual reality. Like there's all kinds of approaches and strategies people can adopt, but it really depends on, you know, what is going to work best for you and your relationship. Yeah, I mean, so you bring this up and, I, and I'm curious because there are a lot of 
open sexual relationships. You know, the traditional little house on the prairie thing, you know, with the Ingalls family back in the day, it's a new world we live in. Right. And you hear and I, you know, I talk to my friends and, and they tell me about stuff. And, you know, of course, things are it's respectful conversation. But I'm like, really, like. You know, I know people who bring in another person into the mix and it blurs boundaries. And what can you do? You know, like, how do you is is that still can you still have healthy relationships with that sort of thing? Or does one person eventually you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a thousand questions around something like this. So how does that work? Yeah, it's a super important question, and I'll preface it with some statistics. So nationally representative surveys in the United States and Canada have both found the same thing, which is that one in five adults say they've been in some type of sexually open relationship before, which tells us that this is not a really rare or uncommon thing. And in survey studies, we see that about one in 20 people say that they're currently in some type of open relationship. So lots of people are doing this and these relationships can work. Uh, I can point you to a lot of studies and review (laughs) articles and meta analyses that actually find that on average relationship quality is very similar for people who are monogamous and people who are what we call consensually non-monogamous. The people who are not doing well are the people who are non-consensually non-monogamous, which is the term for cheating. (laughs) Exactly. That's that's a different thing. Um, But when people have that open open communication and they set their boundaries, they can figure out ways often to make that work. And sometimes it improves and strengthens the relationship because they're not putting all of their expectations and goals and hopes and everything into just one person, right? It's really hard for one person to meet all of your needs sexually and emotionally. And I think Esther Perel, uh, very popular sex therapist has described this very well when she talks about how we often have these competing needs that we want to have met when our partners, right? We want them to be a constant source of novelty, excitement, and surprise, but yet we also want them to be very predictable and stable and reassuring. And it's right. So we want security <laughs> and surprise at the same time. And that's like a really tall order. Yeah, that's a tall order. Exactly. So I, I got to ask you this because I, when I do these interviews and I love doing my thing to myself, if you're a listener listening to this right now, they probably, whatever, driving down the road or on a run and they're listening and they're thinking, God, here's what I want to know the answer to. I think when we're talking about these open relationships, what have been your experiences when a couple, the guy, the girl, the guy, guy, girl, girl, whatever, they approach their partner and say, hey, I'm thinking this would be a good idea. And they are met with not open arms and an upset partner. How do you introduce this? And how do you I, take me through this whole thing? Because I could see that going south real quickly. And, uh, you know, with good intention, right? Y- you think these people value their relationship. They recognize that that element of their relationship is off and it could destroy an otherwise beautiful existence. So you take a shot at it, but it may not go your way. W- what happens then? Yeah, there's lots that I can say on this. Uh, <laughs> I actually just published a study recently that looked at fantasies about open relationships among people who are currently monogamous. And I find that most people who are monogamous have fantasized about this before. And the ones who have acted on those fantasies, for the most part, report very positive outcomes, again, suggesting that this can work out. But there are some cases where it does lead to conflict and problems. And I think as a starting point, you need to ask yourself, why do you want to open up this relationship? And if 
the answer that you come to is that the relationship that you're currently in is failing and you know, things are not going well. That's not a good reason to open up a relationship because odds are, if you don't have good communication and you've got other problems, <laughs> you're going to be worse up, off. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and that's going to be the end of the relationship probably. But you know, if there are other reasons, uh, because you have certain needs that aren't being met or you can't meet in your current relationship. And you also want to see your partner have the opportunity to meet those needs as well. And you're coming at this from a position of strength where you're looking at this as a way to improve and enhance your closeness and your relationship. That's more the right reason for for wanting to do this. So as, as always with fantasies, I think it's best to approach them from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness in your relationship. You know, I was telling you, like, like I commented earlier, I've been practicing family medicine. I have patients that have been mine for 20 plus years, uh, uh, you know, a number of older couples who've been together 50, 60 years, you know, imagine, I mean, wow. And I, I find that when they talk about things, when they bring up things, they're so casual and respectful about how they talk about this in the room, in the exam room. And I think to myself, my God, this 88 year old man and woman couple is a lot more mature about their approach than some of my idiot friends, you know? So it makes you realize this is important. It's a very important thing. And I I think, you know, a lot of people don't know how to introduce something like this. And then we have, you know, if we switch gears for a second, let's talk about casual sex. First of all, how would you define casual sex? And second of all, does this work? Does, I mean, can, you know, how do you do this? Yeah. So casual sex, the way I define it would be sex that occurs outside of a committed relationship. And it can take a lot of different forms from a one night stand to a friend with benefits to a booty Mm -hmm. call, right? There's all different terms and, you know, arrangements that exist. And there's lots of ideas out there about casual sex that say that it's unhealthy, that it's emotionally damaging. And what we see in the research is sort of a complex picture. Uh, For the most part, though, people report positive experiences with casual sex, but there are some cases where people report regret and don't have positive experiences. And part of figuring out whether it's right for you depends on how you view sex and love. And do you see these things as going together or do you see them as separate? And why is it that you want to have casual sex? Is that you're pursuing pleasure or is it that you're hoping that that will turn into a relationship? And this is what I've seen in my own research. I've actually published several studies on friends with benefits, including a one-year study of people who had a friend with benefits to see what happens over time and what predicts having better outcomes. And the single biggest predictor, again, is communication and getting on the same page at the beginning about what this is and isn't. Do we have the same expectations and goals? Where is this going? What are the ground rules and boundaries? And so I think the rules for casual (laughs) sex are often very similar to the rules for sex and committed relationships. And it's all about being on the same page and having that communication. I got to ask you, did, did, did you have, I'm sure you did. Were there examples of couples that said, oh yeah, let's go into this study. I think this is an interesting study and it just went south. Oh, sure. (laughs) It was fascinating to look at, you know, what happened after a year and people were all over the board. Um, and, and there wasn't just like one primary outcome, you know, that like say most people got, it was pretty evenly split between those who were still friends with benefits a year later, those who went back to being just friends, those who became romantic partners, they started a 
relationship from this. And then those who like their relationship totally disintegrated. Now they're not, not even friends anymore. Uh, and so, you know, again, this can go in a lot of different directions, but the people who reported the best outcomes were the people who, you know, again, went in with the same expectations. And for people who were hoping that it would turn into a relationship, they tended to be pretty unsuccessful in having that happen. <laughs> All right. So let me ask you this. Oh, my God. I mean, we could go on and on and on with this, but it's so important. You know, I've seen through the course of my career so many examples of couples who seemingly everything else is right in their life, but the sex thing isn't. And then it leads to infidelity and this and fights and, and, you know, it's unfortunate. And, And I think that if we approach this in a more sophisticated way and not make it this dirty conversation. I think more oftentimes than not, your significant other appreciates that. Maybe not initially, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's lots of thoughts that I have on this, but one thing that's coming to mind is that one in seven married couples in the United States are in a sexless relationship. You know, so this is a one in seven, one in seven. Wow. And you know, part of the reason for that is because, you know, people change and grow apart over time. One right. partner loses interest in sex uh, or they, you know, start to want different things. And what we see is that people who are in sexless relationships really struggle with how do you manage this and how do you get your sex life back on track and is it even possible? And there's all kinds of things that couples can try. And one of the things that I like to recommend and that many sex therapists recommend is to start scheduling sex. Um, And a lot of people, when they hear scheduling sex, that sounds very unsexy, right? Because sex is supposed to be spontaneous and never planned. But I think the way to think about it is that you plan all the other fun things you do in your life. You plan your vacations, you plan parties, you totally agree your social outings. Why not plan your sex? And if you do that, that gives the opportunity to build up anticipation and to be in the right mindset when sex actually happens. So you can disconnect from your devices for a while first, relax. And so there's a lot of value in scheduled sex. And once you start finding how great scheduled sex can be, that can be the thing that opens the valve to really kicking your sex life back into high gear. Yeah, I think that is a great way to, th- and you're absolutely right. I love that you made that point. You plan everything else with your significant other and your partner. That seems like if if you, there's problems in the bedroom or maybe it's not in the bedroom, maybe it's in the kitchen or wherever it is, that that needs to be addressed. And I, I think uh, so many people, it's evolved a lot more I see now than when I started my practice in the 90s. People are much more um, open and, and willing to discuss it. And I think to me, it implies the certain a certain commitment or, or true depth of love for someone when you say, hey, this is something I'm struggling with. And I want your help and, and, you know, opening that, that doorway, I don't know what it looks like, how you do it. And it's different for everybody, but listen, if you're in a relationship and, and you just, you love this person and you got something that's not quite right, you work on that. Yeah. And that's really one of the big keys to relationship success is learning how to overcome conflict together. 
people who have what we call a growth mindset when it comes to relationships have the happiest, healthiest, long lasting relationships, because rather than looking at a challenge as the end or a sign that things weren't meant to be, they see it as an opportunity to overcome an obstacle together and grow together. And that can improve and enhance the connection you have with your partner. So, so many, I mean, look, we just, we're scratching the surface of this. And again, I think it's so important to a healthy relationship where you look at the stress, you know, I always say, I always say to my friends jokingly, but not really jokingly, life is hard. Life is challenging. You know, I remember when I was a little kid and you really didn't have much responsibility, maybe feed the dog and make your bed and you go to school and that's it. Right. As you get older, life becomes challenging. And I think your sexual relationship interaction starts to take a back seat and it really should be at the forefront. Absolutely. It's very easy for sex to fall to the back burner for, for several reasons, because you're juggling so many things for one thing. Another is that many people see sex as something that happens at night. Like it's the last thing you do before you go to bed. (laughs) And you know, people tend to be pretty tired, (laughs) you know, odds are somebody is not going to be in the mood and it's going to feel like work. And so that can lead the sex life to, to really fall off. And so you have to really make it a priority. Um, I think a different way to think about good sex is that it requires effort. It shouldn't be effortless or rather it's not normally effortless for most people. And that's just one of the keys of a relationship is being willing to put the work in to make it work for you. Well, listen, Justin, I, uh, a lot of good stuff here. We may have to revisit this on another episode, but some great, great stuff. And I appreciate you spending some time uh, educating me and uh, educating the, the listeners because uh, it's fantastic stuff. Where can people find you? Because we're hoping open Pandora's box with these conversations, get these conversations going with your significant other. Where can people find you? I run the sex and psychology blog and podcast at sexandpsychology.com. And my goal is to provide the sex ed that you never got in school. And there's practical information, educational materials on there. You can find links to my books and follow me on social media where I am providing daily updates on what's going on in the world of sex that you can use and apply in your own life. Thank you. That was, I mean, a lot of good stuff. I feel better about now. I mean, I I, I appreciate stuff like this because I think it's going to allow me to even have better, not so much my personal life. Well, that too, but with my patients, I think having this understanding and I appreciate you because it's going to make me a better doctor by discussing these things. So thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. important stuff for for a good relationship and i think it uh, oftentimes goes undiscussed so now for the weekly rx a lot of great information i think the top of my list is communication and i think communicating with your significant other and letting them know how you're feeling so important if you care about your relationship communicating that with your significant other is critical i also like The idea of expanding your sexual menu, the idea of what sex is can be a lot more than what people think. And lastly, plan it out, plan things. 
I think uh, the good doctor mentioned it. Uh, it doesn't sound like it may be the um, the most uh, you know ideal thing to do, but listen, it's it's important. So plan it out. That's it for today. Don't forget to subscribe for free, download and listen to Wellness Inc. with me, Dr. Mike Moreno on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow me at The 17 Day Diet and also at Stage 29 Podcasts on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you. See you next time. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional. This podcast does not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.